This week, we're going to talk about more million-dollar decision-making secrets from Annie Duke, who was a psychologist at Penn who dropped out to be a professional poker player, making $4 million, and then returning to academia to study the science of decision-making. And last week, we talked about how your mind deceives you and why, the power of thinking probabilistically, and how to learn effectively from experience, which sounds trivial, but it's actually quite hard because there's a lot of like conflation of causation and correlation. It's hard to see the counterfactual. Um, and the default is to learn imperfectly or to learn outright wrong lessons from experience. So if you haven't heard last week's episode, I would start there. This week, we're going to build on what we talked about last week to figure out how to establish truth-seeking in your peer group or team. Social dynamics can be extremely beneficial or extremely detrimental to your ability to seek the truth and make better decisions. We're going to talk about the power and fragility of dissent and how to encourage and facilitate dissent. And we're going to talk about the transformative practice of mental time travel, which can make you know, high double-digit differences to your outcomes in various domains. And it's going to be great. Um, this stuff has already really helped me, and it's it can help you in a diverse range of topics and life areas from, like, work to medical emergencies to financial decisions. So why do most people fail at truth-seeking in groups and alone? The reason is that truth-seeking is uncomfortable and counterintuitive. If you, if you don't believe me, like, try answering someone truthfully the next time they ask you how they look in their new outfit. Dissent is hard to muster and easy to squash, and conformity is the norm. I mean, you see this in various places, but the, one of the classic experiments is Solomon Ash's conformity studies, where you'd have, like, three lines, and they're the same length, and, you know... The experimenters would plant confederates who would say, actually, the lines are different lengths. And the participants, like the majority of the time, would be swayed to believe, or at least say that they believe, that the lines are different, even though they're clearly the same. Um, so it's, it's, it's not a trivial thing, but there are techniques you can use to facilitate and encourage dissent. And... Um, the other thing that we're going to talk about today, like the third thing that really is hard for people is putting yourselves back into a position you were in when you made a past decision or putting yourself into a position you will be when considering the consequences of a decision. So this idea of mental time travel is quite difficult for people unless they practice. So an example of what this looks like when people struggle with it is in the 90s, troops were offered lump sum payments or annuities worth 40% more than the lump sum. And that's present value. So you take the value of the annuity and you discount it back to the present. You add up all those payments and the annuities are worth 40% more. The majority of troops chose the lump sum. So it, it's not easy to, to do this mental time travel, but it, it is very powerful and we will discuss how to do it today. And, you know, as I said in the last episode, life is a series of decisions and the quality of your life is directly proportional to the quality of those decisions. What we didn't say last time is that many of the most important decisions you make are going to be with other people in groups. 
at work with your family. Um, I mean, mostly those two are where most of the most important decisions are made, but there are other decisions that you can be made with your friends, with the people in various hobbies you are a part of, you know, but really work and family are, are where the tough decisions tend to occur. Um, and including financial decisions in the realm of family as well. So let's talk about how to make effective decisions, not just as individuals, but also in groups with all the perils and opportunities entailed by that. The first thing to consider when it comes to group decision-making is that there are two different modes of decision-making that we fall into when we're in groups. Group behavior in terms of decision-making can be confirmatory or exploratory. And confirmatory decision-making is a lot of like backslapping and a lot of like, yeah, we all believe this thing. We all agree. We're all unified. And moralistic decision-making often takes on this flavor. So as Jonathan Haidt says, like morality binds and blinds. So we all agree with this thing. We're all on the same page. It binds us together. And we bl blind ourselves to anything that might contradict these core beliefs that we're rallying around. So you, you have to work to cultivate exploratory behavior in a group. It, it's not a natural thing. As we said before, it's not intuitive. It's not comfortable. It has to be practiced and flies in the face of social norms. And there's kind of two sides to this. One is making an explicit agreement to do it. And the other is like enforcing truth-seeking norms in other people, but also in yourself. So I know for me, like, you know, my fiance is a philosophy major and is like a very logical person. And oftentimes I've found in the past, like she'll be making a very valid uh, argument or asking a very valid question and I'll get excited or I'll get upset. And like over time, I've practiced more and more like realizing that, you know, I'm trying to be confirmatory when she's trying to be exploratory. So there's an internal moderation that has to kind of develop there as you as you try to pursue these truth-seeking norms. And there's also like getting together and agreeing that like, um, this is what we're trying to do and why. Um, so let's see here. So how, when does exploratory thought happen best? So it happens best when decision makers believe they're going to be accountable to a group whose views are unknown, who are interested in accuracy, and who are reasonably well-informed, and also who have a legitimate reason for inquiring into the reasons behind judgments and choices made by the group. So diversity of perspectives is very important. It's also important to understand that, like, in many situations, you, you don't have this dynamic. So, for example, like, at work, you probably do know the views of your boss on various things. Most bosses are, you know, reasonably comfortable telling you their views on things. But what I've noticed with many great leaders is they'll keep silent and they won't let their view be known until their subordinates have shared their views because they understand that they're going to anchor 
what people say and they're going to compromise truth seeking. The other thing too is like, you know, if you're in a leadership position, let's say at a startup, for example, if you get angry when people dissent or when people like bring you inconvenient truths, you're going to demonstrate that you're not interested in accuracy. If you don't seem competent, if you don't cultivate knowledge, you're not going to seem well-informed. So if you, if you're in a position where you're holding people accountable, don't make your views readily known until other people share their views. Make sure you demonstrate that you're interested in accuracy by not lashing out when people are telling you the truth. Try to be as well informed as you can. And through those things, you're going to build legitimacy and you're going to be able to encourage this culture of truth seeking. And another thing to consider here is like how little this sounds like a university. So if you're in a, a discipline in the social sciences, you can be quite sure of the views of the people who will be reviewing your work. You can also be quite sure that while they may be interested in accuracy, they have other competing interests that might outweigh accuracy, like political considerations, for example. And, you know, that really tends to sway outcomes. So we'll talk more about that later, but there's been some interesting research done on universities and diversity of perspective and how that actually deeply influences research results. Um, so as far as accuracy, if you are trying to encourage a culture of accuracy, some questions you might ask of your beliefs or the beliefs of people in your group are, why might not this not be true? What other evidence might be out there that could bear on this? Are there analogies I can draw with other areas that might help me to gauge whether these beliefs are true? Are there sources of information that we've missed or minimized? What do other people believe about this and what's their evidence? Why might they be right? So another way to encourage truth-seeking in teams is to use dissent channels and red teams. So after 9-11, the CIA created these red teams whose explicit job is to question whatever decision is being made and like play devil's advocate in as rigorous a way as possible. And a CIA red team was instrumental in making decisions that led to the death of bin Laden. And it's a, it's a good mechanism to have because it gives people full license to contradict. Um, another, another great tool, like I was saying, is dissent channels. So having anonymous channels for anyone to voice dissent against whatever the company is trying to do or your organization is trying to do. And uh, now let's talk about something pretty interesting here. So judges and scientists are two groups that we would consider to be about as impartial as they get. Right, like we we look up to these groups of people for their impartiality. So we're gonna go through what happens when you don't have viewpoint diversity in a legal context and in scientific context. And we're not gonna do that to cast aspersions on those groups of people, but to look at ourselves and say, if these people are paragons of impartiality, 
then how are we doing in our groups on this? So Cass Sunstein at Harvard Law studied 6,000 federal appeals and 20,000 votes uh, looking at these appellate review boards. And on an appellate review board, there are three judges. When there was political diversity on the board, the presence of dissent had a strong ideological dampening effect. And when there wasn't, you just didn't see that. So for example, in environmental cases, Democrats who normally voted for plaintiffs 43% of the time did so 10% of the time in the presence of Republicans. And Republican judges who voted for plaintiffs 20% of the time in environmental cases voted for plaintiffs 42% of the time when they were seated with two Democrats. So in the words of Cass Sunstein and colleagues, they, in short, they claim to show both strong conformity effects and group polarization within federal courts of appeals. Another interesting angle on this is back in the day, Supreme Court justices used to pride themselves in hiring clerks of opposing viewpoints. It was this kind of like informal norm, but that norm has really disappeared over time and people see their clerks as more like, you know, just more like, it's more of that confirmatory dynamic, right? It's like this clerk is aligned with me and I don't have to spend all this time to train him, you know, but you wouldn't have that mindset if you were trying to cultivate truth seeking. You know, your feeling that you have to train dissent out of people is is contradictory to the impartial truth seeking mission, fact finding mission of being in the Supreme Court. So now on to scientists. So in the academy, it's it's no secret that the social sciences are heavily left-wing. So as an example, 85 to 96% of sociologists identify as left of center. And in social psychology, back in the 90s, it was a four to one ratio of left-wing to right-wing folks. Now it's about a 10 to one ratio. And Haight, Tetlock, Duarte, Crawford, and Jusim in the Brain and Behavioral Sciences Journal in 2015 published this paper where they found that, quote, political values have become embedded into research questions in ways that made some constructs unobservable and unmeasurable, thereby invalidating attempts at hypothesis testing. Confirmation bias led reviewers to work extra hard to find flaws with papers whose conclusions they dislike and to be more permissive about methodological issues when they endorse the conclusions. And of course, this says nothing of the types of questions you would investigate if you were of one perspective or another. And in, um, in social psychology, obviously, your, your topic of interest is politically charged, controversial, and very much falls prey to these various like vectors of distortion, right? So as, as an example... Let's say you were doing a study on the political psychology of conservatives and your hypothesis is that conservatives are more stubborn and antisocial than liberals and you yourself are left-wing. All the reviewers on the pan on your peer review board are left-wing. The readers of the journal are left-wing. The institutional review board are all left-wing. 
if we go back and we, we look at the atmosphere that promotes truth seeking, one of the things is believing you're going to be accountable to an authority whose views are unknown, who's interested in accuracy, who has legitimate reasons to inquire into what you're doing, right? Like most of the criticism of this type of research comes from outside of the academy. And in that context, people don't have legitimacy, quote unquote, to the to the scientists. Like the scientists don't care if some regular person on Main Street is like, you know, this research seems out of sync with my everyday experience and seems one-sided, you know? Um, but it's, it's pretty interesting. And another thing that's interesting about this framing of Annie Duke of like thinking in bets, you know, is when peer reviewers, so there was a study done in peer review in, in, as part of this like replication effort for psychological research. And they had some peer reviewers predict whether an experimental result would replicate without getting paid. And other reviewers would put money on the line and bet on whether results would replicate. Those who didn't place a bet were right 58% of the time. And those who did place a bet were right 71% of the time. So the intelligence of people placing bets, gamblers, investors, people with skin in the game tends to be greater than folks who are apparently more impartial, right? Like that's a little counterintuitive. You would expect that having money on the line would make you less rational, would make you, you know, less likely to think clearly in a way. But the additional loss aversion of saying, hey, I have to actually put some money down on this prompts you to dig deeper and think harder about whether what you're saying is like true or not true. Um, so... So that's pretty interesting. I mean, and really the point of this is not to excoriate scientists and judges, but to say that like scientists and judges are known for impartiality, like in, in the sense that the culture of their profession promotes impartiality, at least on some level. If they're struggling with this this much, how are we doing with it? And how could we do better? And part of the answer is preserving dissent, which was the second thing I wanted to talk about today. So Robert Merton was one of the most influential sociologists of the 20th century, and he coined the term role model, terms, role model, self-fulfilling prophecy, reference group, unintended consequences, focus group. He was the first sociologist awarded the National Medal of Science, and he came up with these like Mertonian norms which were intended to promote an atmosphere of scientific inquiry, accurate scientific inquiry. So according to Merton, a scientific community should be transparent, universal, disinterested, and engage in organized skepticism. So his, his first norm, he, he originally called it communism, but I think that's kind of unfortunate and doesn't really like describe what it really is. So I don't mean to be playing verbal games and getting involved with semantics. I prefer transparency for what it is. So the first norm, transparency, is basically like about data belonging to the group. You have an obligation to share as much information as you can, whether it makes you look good or bad or agrees or disagrees with your 
deeply held beliefs. And Merton says, secrecy is the antithesis of this norm and full and open communication is its enactment. The norm of universalism is about judging evidence fairly and consistently regardless of where it comes from. So when you're tempted to dismiss an information source, when you just don't like somebody and you're like, you know what, this person, whatever, take your pick, Tucker, Tucker Carlson, you, you think he's a complete fascist or, um, I don't know, who else? Um, Rachel Maddow, you, you think she's a complete, you know, communist who's trying to take over your life. Try to find something you admire about them. Find some things you agree with them on. And if, if, if that really doesn't soften this distaste, and if this really doesn't help you to take what they're saying for what it is, imagine the same message coming from a source that you actually do value. The norm of disinterestedness is about being aware of and mitigating conflicts of interest. So this is interesting, where even in particle physics and cosmology, according to the Nobel Prize winner Saul Perlmutter, outcome-blind analysis is often considered the only way to trust many results. So, I mean, there are controversies within particle physics and cosmology, but compared to social psychology or sociology, these are fields that are that lend themselves much more to impartiality as it is. And despite that, their standard and their expectations around accuracy are much, much higher. So, you know, if this is true in particle physics, think about how true this must be in our lives and in the social sciences. So another thing you can do to encourage disinterestedness is deconstruct decisions before the outcome is known. This is really helpful and important because there's a strong emotional component to decision-making, right? So last week we talked about like, if you stop and think about the best decisions you've ever made, very likely all of them will have good outcomes. If you think about the worst decisions you've ever made, all of them will likely have negative outcomes. When in reality, like decision-making doesn't guarantee good outcomes. You can make all the right decisions and still end up with things blowing up, right? So deconstructing decisions before the outcome is known gives you the impartiality to be like, okay, at this point in the process, this is what we knew. These are the options we had. This is the information we had. And this is why we decided to do what we did. Not knowing the outcome, would we do this again a thousand times? If the answer is yes, then that's a good decision. That's the best decision you could have made. And I'd like you to picture to really understand this, like picture you have a family member or a pet that is sick and you have to make a decision whether to operate or not. And it's an invasive operation. There could be complications from it. And in fact, there often are complications from it. But if you don't do it, there could be complications from that. There could be serious consequences from that. And you, you weigh all the probabilities, you do the research, you you know have four different doctors, they're all giving you the same opinion, you think hard about it, you, you go to Google Scholar, you look up the, the probability of various complications and you decide, okay, we're gonna go forward with the operation. 
After the procedure, you find out, actually, the result was negative. You could have not done it in this case, and it would have been better. At that point, it is very, very difficult to disinterestedly analyze the decision that you just made. It's very difficult to know the result and then go backwards and be like, you know what? It was the right thing to operate and to move forward with this procedure, knowing that we didn't have to do it. Because the reality is, if you were to go back and put yourself back in that position, with all the information you had, you would make the same decision, right? And, you know, out of a thousand times that this happens, the majority of times it would be the right decision based on that information that you had. So really think about how difficult this this is to do, to separate decision quality from result quality. And think about how much easier that would be if you deconstruct decisions before the outcome is known. And when you're with your truth-seeking group, don't share the outcome before they've analyzed the decision, if you can. And generally try to avoid analyzing the group's, or sorry, avoid infusing the group's analysis with your beliefs. So the norm of organized skepticism is about encouraging dissent and red teaming within the group. We talked about dissent channels, red teams, and also an explicit agreement to seek truth. Okay, so you need social feedback if you deviate from truth seeking. And I would honestly recommend meditation too, as a way to see how you're reacting to things. Internally and externally. If you get an inconvenient truth, it's okay to feel a way about it. It's not okay to lash out because that compromises the quality of truth-seeking within the group. It's normal to feel a way about it. So Merton initially like came up with these norms because he saw that there were various people in his time who were arraying their political perspectives in the garb of scientists. And he wanted to reintroduce like what he saw as authentic scientific truth-seeking norms that would encourage and promote a, a culture of accuracy. And I think now this is as important as ever. I think it was important then and it's still important now. Um, and a couple of tips here on how to induct people who are not in your truth-seeking group into a truth-seeking mode because this is very often gonna be the case, right? Like you don't have everybody in your little cabal, your little product team, your little engineering team, your, uh, you know, whatever investment group, your, your venture capital firm who um, have made this explicit agreement to seek truth, have bought into these norms of truth seeking. Most often it's like some random person and like, you know, if you do it wrong, you're just going to ambush them with some harsh truths that they're not ready for. They won't take them in. It'll damage your relationships. How do you avoid this? So the first thing you do is you express uncertainty yourself. You come in and say, you know, I'm not sure what the answer is. Here are some various things it could be. Here's what I think the probabilities of these things are. And here's where I think our assumptions are. Here's Here are the information gaps. Second thing is, Try to lead with agreement. So try to go in and say, hey, 
here's the part of what you're saying that I think makes sense, that I think is likely to be true, and here's another factor to consider. So try to supplement rather than negate where possible, and also ask for a temporary truth-seeking agreement. So say something like, would you like to vent right now, or are you looking for a solution? Because if you're looking for a solution, you know, let's try to be as, we can try to be as accurate as possible, and we can dig into this together. So the third thing I want to talk about is this concept of mental time travel. So there's a Seinfeld episode where he's like, you know, I stay up late because I'm the night guy. You know, what about getting five hours of sleep? You know, who cares? That's morning guy's problem. That's not my problem. I'm, I'm night guy. And then in the morning he's like, ah, oh, that night guy. I, I hate that night guy, you know? So this, this dynamic is called temporal discounting. And it's a tendency to favor our present self at the expense of our future self. So we talked about the military members in the 90s took 40% discount on getting a lump sum payment instead of an annuity. Um, that's one example, but like, it's it's a very common thing to prioritize your present self over your past self. You know, ask yourself, what is the average amount of savings that an American has? You know, what's the rate of obesity? How many people prioritize like the, you know, mouth pleasure now versus uh, health later? And, you know, I've been overweight various times in my life, so I'm not immune to any of this. I've also had financial struggles at times. Luckily, right now, neither. But um, but I know what that's like. So not coming from a place of a high horse. I think we all struggle with this. Or in the startup context, let's say like how many people bend the product to accommodate a large or important early customer only to deviate in major ways from the product vision and therefore compromise the general marketability of the product or the general usability of the product. How much feature creep is there where it's like, oh, you know, we kind of need to build this now because of this account, that account, and then the product is diffuse, not really for anyone, not usable, uh, and just doesn't have appropriate cut through to really gain traction in any particular segment, right? So something to understand about the way we think about the future is the brain pathways relating to thinking about the future overlap those that resurrect the past. So we're talking about the hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex. And for that reason, visualizing the future as if you're remembering it can have a very powerful effect. So Balenson and Karstensen from Stanford use VR to show people an aged version of themselves. These people saved more than twice as much as people who saw a present version of themselves. So that's a, that's a big difference. Uh, another ancient example of this is the Stoics would practice a form of reflection where you'd look back on your current situation from the perspective of your older self. So, you know, we can do it right now. Imagine yourself, you know, I don't know what you're doing. You're doing the dishes, right? Oh, it's a chore. It's a painful chore. You're listening to this podcast. You're doing the dishes. Now imagine yourself being too old and infirm to do your own dishes or to stand comfortably for long enough to do the dishes or being in your own home instead of in a nursing home where you have the ability to, you know, decide when the dishes get done, what dishes you have, 
when you do different things, all of that disappears from the perspective of your older self. And in the case of the Stoic reflection, the point is to have gratitude for these inconveniences that we're privileged to experience. You know, you're sitting in traffic and you're, you know, on your commute listening to this, you're, you're sitting there pain-free. You're able to drive your own car. You know what I mean? You have somewhere to be. You're needed. You're going to work. Um, you're able to see well enough to drive. And from the perspective of your older self, all of those things may not be true. So anyway, depressing, but ultimately a helpful exercise to help you appreciate what you have. Um, so what research, oh, sorry, I'm getting fidgety and like bouncing my knee and stuff. So what research has found on this, this, um, this technique of backcasting, which is you, you project yourself in the future. You're like, okay, this thing has happened. I, I envision it. Now I look back and I see, you know, what are the things that led to this? That kind of uh, that kind of mental exercise promotes an increase in likelihood of success of about thirty percent in certain narrowly circumscribed uh, exercises. And actually, the improvements are even more significant if you have a visualization of yourself having failed at the, at the task and all the things that led to your failure. So this is counterintuitive as well because people have an addiction to positive thinking. You know, they think that they misunderstand the self-fulfilling prophecy effect to think that if I only think positive thoughts, I will succeed. And the thing about it is if you only think positive thoughts, like as far as if you visualize visualize yourself succeeding, it almost serves to mollify your need to succeed, first of all. And it also over-represents the problem space as far as like positive things that could happen. If you actually want to succeed, it's helpful to do the opposite. It's helpful to be like, okay, I would like to, you know, let's say double the number of listeners of this podcast in a year. Let's say I failed to do that. Why have I failed to do that? Well, I went wildly off topic to what my listeners expected. The audio quality was lower than other options they had. They weren't getting useful information out of it because, you know, I was not digging deep enough to find stuff that's useful. Um, I didn't have the credibility to gain traction because I wasn't reading closely enough and doing enough deep research. So by doing those things, you're like, okay, here are the things that I can address to improve the situation. Here's where this could go off the rails. And one study found that women who do this pre-mortem in their quest to lose weight lost 24 more pounds than women who didn't do it. Um, so it, it's a very helpful exercise in that sense. And it's very, it's very interesting too, like the other areas in which they've done this research. So one other area is like, they talk to people with unrequited crushes. And five months later, the people who negatively visualized and did a pre-mortem on why they didn't get into a relationship with this person were significantly more likely to be in a relationship with that person. They've done it for studying for midterms and for various other things. 
So the premortem is, is actually a very powerful thing to do, and it's something I highly recommend practicing. A lot of this stuff requires practice. So what I would recommend, honestly, is like try to analyze a decision you've made each day. Try to do a premortem of something you're trying to accomplish each day for two weeks, you know, and really get it down. So there's a business consultant, Susie Welch, who has this like 10-10-10 method, um, where if you're able to see that you're in a decision-making process, you ask yourself, what are the consequences of each option that I could take in 10 minutes, in 10 months, and in 10 years? And how have I felt in the past when I've made similar decisions? So the question there, of course, is like, how do we know if, uh, how do we know if we need to interrupt our decision-making process? How do we know if we're being irrational or if we're being reflexive about decision-making or if we're generally like due for a pause and some analysis? So here, here are some different cues for decision interrupts. So one is when you, when you find yourself saying, I know, I'm sure, I knew it, always, never, I'm certain, 100%, you have no idea what you're talking about, best, worst, um, things that project illusions of certainty and overconfidence um, are definitely extremely important cues for decision interrupts. Fielding irrational outcomes. So you're like, I can't believe how unlucky I got or I'm at the top of my game, I killed it, I planned it perfectly. Considerations of luck, skill, blame, or credit. Uh, and that can be when considering outcomes involving yourself or others. As we talked about last week, you're more likely to ascribe your own outcomes to skill and ascribe other people's outcomes to luck. Which is also why it's helpful to have a truth-seeking group because they see you differently than you see yourself. Anytime you're moaning or complaining about luck, that's a that's a moment for a decision interrupt. Because it's 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 unhelpful and it's it's polluting your ability to see clearly. What was luck? What was skill? What could you have done differently? What what was unavoidable? Um, characterizing people to dismiss their ideas. So if you're like, oh, this person's a, a libtard, or they're just like, you know. Uh, conservative who just whatever hates women or whatever it is anytime you're focusing on the messenger and not the message and trying to dismiss them you're violating the mertonian norm of universalism and you're setting yourself up for not seeking truth and making bad decisions when you're zooming in too far to what's happening locally and not zooming out to gain perspective when you're focused on the day-to-day -day ups and downs of, you know, your performance in the gym as opposed to the overall trend. When you're engaged in motivated reasoning, so you're accepting or rejecting information without evidence, if you hear yourself saying, you know, if you ask anybody, this is true, it's just conventional wisdom. It's like, can you prove it's not true? And I definitely fall guilty with this one. I, again, my fiance... <laughs> It's good at pointing out when I'm falling guilty with this one. Um, so when you're saying that things are wrong, wrong is a conclusion and not a rationale, and almost nothing is 0% or 100%. When you have a lack of self-compassion, because this stuff is hard, 
life is hard and you're doing your best. So focus on improving instead of just excoriating yourself. If you find yourself editing too much of the story, then you're violating the Mertonian norm of transparency, or if you want to be an originalist, communism. Um, when you're infecting listener with listeners with conflicts of interest and sharing your beliefs and biases too much before they've come to their own conclusions, and when you find yourself discouraging engagement from others, all of these things are cues that you need to interrupt your decision-making process and inject some analysis. So another thing that I wanted to talk about is you may find when you try to engage with people in this way, when you ask them to put probabilities on future scenarios, when you're doing scenario planning, right? You're like, okay, we're trying to make this decision. What is the range of possible futures that can occur? This is something that Nate Silver is, is famous for using, but they use it in, in various contexts, various people in various contexts, the military, futurists of various types, investors, and data scientists, and prediction artists like Nate Silver. So when you're trying to do this with folks who are uninitiated in this way of thinking, they resist putting probabilities on possible futures because it feels arbitrary or unfounded. What you have to know and what you have to share with them is that's the point. This is a thinking exercise that exposes uncertainty. It's not about approaching future predictions from a point of like perfection. It's about acknowledging that you're already making a decision. You're making a prediction that's baked into that decision. And like making explicit your assumptions is going to make you better. And the attempt to like think probabilistically is going to take you away from like a 0% or a 100% certainty, which is going to make you more accurate. So final, final note for today is try to think of time as a tree and all the branches are all these like different possibilities. As you go into the future, a hindsight bias just like cuts all the branches like off of the tree. So it looks like this path, no matter, no matter how improbable, no matter if like this, you know, branch that had a 2% chance of joining the trunk, join the trunk. Now it looks like a hundred percent chance, right? So the, the key to this mental time travel is to be able to preserve that view of time as a tree. When I go to the base of the tree, there are all these different possibilities that could have occurred. They didn't, but they could have. And as I go up the tree, I can see at each point in time, the different possibilities that could have occurred, their relative likelihood and Therefore, I'm able to really understand whether or not I made an optimal decision um, rather than thinking that I either did or I didn't unequivocally because of how things happened to go. This is, again, very difficult emotionally and intellectually, uh, but especially emotionally. Like when you make a decision that's the right decision, but things go wrong because there's always a probability of things going wrong, it's very difficult to continue to feel that you made the, the right decision. And you can expect that other people, most other people are not going to support you in that, right? So let's say you're uh, Pete Carroll, this football coach who, I, I don't know enough about football to do this example justice, but suffice it to say, 
he made a really high percentage play and it went badly, like really badly. And he was like the most hated man, like in football and in his city and people, you know, across the media were just like chewing him out. But in reality, if you reran the scenario a thousand times, that was the right thing to do. Um, but other people are, again, even less initiated into this, you know, technique, this approach, this culture, this mindset of decision-making and rationality. And so they're not going to see it that way, you know? Um, so you have to, you have to find ways to cultivate a group around yourself that does seek truth. And you also have to understand that it's going to be difficult and and that's okay it's going to be difficult but possible and if you get it right it's going to make a huge impact on your outcomes so yeah so next week i think what we're going to talk about next week is we're going to talk about rene gerard mimesis um the nature of desire how your desires can be swayed by the people around you and how you can find yourself doing things that are inauthentic and um, counter to your values by this mechanism of mimesis. My dog is sick right now, hence the delay on um, releasing this podcast episode. Um, and yeah, we're going to do our best to get the next one out this sun next Sunday or next Monday. And I hope you got value out of this. Again, the thing that is most meaningful to me about this podcast is when you guys engage and get in touch and, and share your thoughts. So at AY0N underscore B on Twitter is the best way to get a hold of us. And uh, thank you for listening.